Liz Long has been in this industry for many years, uh, working with families and helping people get into treatment. Andy has been an advocate for mental health and addiction uh, with Crosscheck Radio and through his own experiences. And I am in a, I am a person in long-term recovery and the founder of a sober home for women on the Cape called Brady's Landing. We put this podcast together because the three of us are very passionate about reducing the stigma around mental health and addiction. Uh, we believe the more light we shed on these topics, the less people will stigmatize and otherwise punish those who suffer from these diseases. And we hope the information we provide and the topics we discuss will help encourage people to seek the treatment they need. Um, okay, so let's turn it over to Andy. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Hello. Happy Friday. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Everybody good? We're all good. All, right. all good. I know in this weird, weird time, and uh, we got a great guest today. We're going to have Robin Houston Bean, who we're going to introduce in a minute. Chris will uh, tee that up for us. But in the meantime, uh, interesting article. It's a little late. I found it about two weeks ago. or I just found it, but two weeks. Um, it came out two weeks ago. And um, it's kind of interesting to help address the mental health and substance abuse issue that's currently plaguing our country, and that is rising. There is a, uh, an article from Health Affairs saying, and it came out in, um, on July 9th, I'm surprised I just found it, incorporating mental health and substance abuse screening into COVID-19 contract, contact tracing. And the article says, in the face of the global pandemic, a key first step in returning to normalcy involves contact tracing, identifying who has COVID, who has been exposed to the novel coronavirus and who was immune to contracting COVID-19. And obviously um, these are critical elements as we manage current infections. Um, but this article is saying that, um, you know, we should be doing testing at the same time that we're um, doing these other testing. Uh, so I'm going to throw it out to you guys. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that's something that could be uh, effective? Well, I think that it will, it could be effective if it's done right. But I mean, I don't know how they're going to be able to address, combine it. Like it, it seems like a big, not enough. Be a cluster. It could yeah, be a cluster. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have people coming. I don't know. Well, they're saying it would be voluntary and you could, uh, you know, you could, you could ask about it. I, I don't know. I think it's, I don't, like you said, I don't know how, how they would necessarily do it. I don't know. Um, but it sounds like an, you know, <laughs> an efficient way to do this. Well, it's nice that they're finally starting to recognize that the mental health and the substance abuse has been put on the back burner during this whole COVID thing. I mean, it sounds like, you know, they're starting to revisit it. Uh, whether this is just a quick fix to shut everybody up. I don't know. Um, but but it, I mean, it's saying that, you know, the article saying that, that this could be an important way to prevent morbidity and more mortality. Um, I don't know. It sounds like we have a hard enough time with COVID. I mean, okay. I think what, you know, you go to the doctor you know, and, they're starting and it's like to revisit it. it. They do that, that little quick screen, those three quick questions. Are you safe at home? Do you have, you know, those dark, yeah. If that's what, if that's what they're, they're going to be incorporating, then that's kind of a, they've already been doing that with, with regular doctor checkups. So maybe, you know, when somebody's, if somebody's going for a COVID test and this is like their last straw, maybe they will save. I mean, cause we've been talking about this from the beginning that suicide's going to go up. We're going to see a lot of suicides. We're going to hear about a lot of suicides that we haven't heard about because of COVID. Well, and then the, the, the numbers are, of, of uh, overdoses is, uh, is rising. So I don't know. Sounds like an interesting way to kill two birds at one stone and was one stone. Kimberly, what what say you? I agree. I think that if anything that goes heads us in the right direction is is good. Semantics wise. I'm not, I don't know how they would, how they would implement that. Sounds kind of a little bit convoluted, but if it helps, then I'm all for it. It's idealistic, but I do think at the same time, we're going to have, that's, it's, it's a nice thought. It's a novel thought. I just don't know if that's, uh, you know, real, really feasible. I, I could, I could be wrong, but it's, a, like it, it, 
Yeah. yeah and, uh, and Robin? Well, I, you know, if they used uh, the contact tracers, it could just be a few questions um, and then they could refer to somebody else because the contact tracers aren't going to be trained to help people with mental health or um, addiction crisis. Correct. But, but maybe a way to at least, uh, you know, start the, the discussion. The conversation. Yeah. The conversation. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so that I'm just throwing that out there quickly because we have a great guest today, and Chris is doing her inner jewelry right now. But that's a, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. What are you on wheels? You look like you're you look like you were on wheels. I'm getting, right. my I'm getting my steps in, Andy. All right, let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk to let's meet Robin. Will you uh, do the honors here? Absolutely. Uh, so I met Robin. Oh my gosh, I don't even know. Many years ago, um, at an event, mutual event, uh, and Robin started this amazing foundation. The sun will rise, and just the sun will rise is in itself is a very powerful statement. It's like maybe today is a bad day, but tomorrow the sun will rise. And, um, you know, she lost her son, Nick, five years ago. Yeah. Five years ago. Um, and what she's done now is, is important. Um, she is a foundation uh, that supports families that have lost loved ones. Uh, to accidental overdoses. And, you know, a lot of families have been alone, have been struggling this alone, and then they lose their child and they're even more alone. And Robin, you know, extends that olive branch. And um, sadly, her family has grown, um, you know, with accidental overdoses. So Robin, Houston Bean, um, I would love to uh, give you the floor. You can tell us about your foundation, share a little bit about Nick, and um, we'd love to hear how you guys are surviving, you know, through COVID. Because I know I'm wearing my shirt, the Beanstalk, <laughs> um, and that's not going to happen this year, correct? It's not happening. No, we just found out that we can't um, do it this year. Um, and that's our major source of funding. So we're going to have to come up with a plan B. Um, so the, the foundation started um, because of Nick's death, obviously. Um, when Nick passed, I really hadn't told anybody that, um, well, prior to Nick passing, no, none of my friends knew that Nick had any substance use issues. He was really young and he didn't want anybody to know. So we really um, were isolated in um, this world, trying to navigate it on our own. And then when he died, um, I found my voice because I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. So, um, you know, I shouted from the rooftops that Nick died from an accidental overdose and um, people were shocked to, uh, to realize that it could happen to anybody, that it could happen to the kid down the street who was a brilliant boy, um, a really engaged boy, um, and um, I think it, it shook our community quite a bit. So um, Nick was the kind of person who would embrace um, anybody that he knew to, to come into his group and to not be alone. So I wanted to do the same thing with other families. So we started, well, first I was alone after he died and um, I didn't know what to do. Luckily, I have a wonderful sister and um, she encouraged me to get off of the couch because I, I was just paralyzed. Yeah. Paralyzed, devastated. I mean, it shocking was the last thing I expected. He had been um, in recovery for seven months and it was the first time he, you know, had been in recovery and, um, passed away during his first relapse. So it was like a quick thing. We found out he was addicted to heroin. He wanted help because he had tried to quit on his own, got him into um, the Mass General Arms program and he did everything he was supposed to. We signed on so that we could um, see all the um, drug tests and talk to his doctors and everything was going really great. He had become an EMT and, um, 
really liked the job. And then one day he was dead. Like it just didn't, it didn't, the plan of what I thought was going to happen. We, we didn't understand um, that addiction is a relapsing brain disease um, that he was more likely than not to relapse. I think we were just under the impression, wow, this kid understood he wanted help. He did what he was supposed to and everything was going to be fine. And it definitely wasn't. Can you tell us a little bit about how, um, you know, cause one of the things we always talk about is, is that addiction does not discriminate on neighborhoods and um, demographics, psychographics, where people are based out of how much money you have, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about Nick and his, you know, the, a little more about the type of kid he was and kind of your background a little bit? Yeah. Um, I, we are, we're a middle-class family. I am a business owner in the town. I own a, um, a partner in an insurance agency. My husband is a sheet metal worker and, um, we have a great house with a pool and we have a family that has a house down the Cape and another family that has house down the vineyard. So we had wonderful summers and we ate dinner every night together. Um, Nick played sports. He wasn't very athletic, but he liked to play sports. And um, one, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick funny story. He was on the soccer team and he was really good at soccer. And a lot of kids on the soccer team belonged to the boys gymnastics. It was kind of big in brain tree. And they needed some more kids. And um, <laughs> Nick came to us and said, hey, I'm joining the gymnastics team. And I'm like, you don't even know how to do a cartwheel. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, I'll try anything once. He went on the team and then they ended up winning the state championship. So like, he just will try anything, which is good sometimes, but not so good. You know, like he was the kind of kid who took risks and um, wanted to see what would happen if he did something. So um, he was brilliant. He took the SATs in sixth grade. So he was a smart kid, you know, great head on his shoulders, but took chances and um, probably didn't think anything could happen to him. He was um, voted most memorable in his high school class. He was quirky and funny and um, he liked to wear pins with all different sayings like hug me and um, he he would wear purple skinny jeans and so he was like a well-adjusted, he was a well-adjusted kid. Like he was just a, a all-American kid. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, I would say he was a little nerdy, but he, like everyone loved Nick. Like all the groups loved him, the jocks, the nerds, the orchestra, um, the gamers, you know, like. He just had a little bit of everything. Yeah. Like he was just a well, well-liked kid. And, um, but he was depressed. Um, you know, he'd be that funny, funny kid. And then at home you could see there was depression. And um, I brought it up to the doctor and he said, you know, you know, I can give you a name of someone for him to talk to. And, but Nick wouldn't go and you can't force anyone to, to you know, like you're going to just sit there and not do anything with a therapist. So he wouldn't go and, and, um, started using marijuana to help with his depression. He self started self-medicating. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't uh, really use alcohol because I had told uh, my kids that uh, alcoholism was in our family tree. So from a very young age, I really drilled in that message. You know, if you, if you drink, you know, you're going to be an alcoholic. I just know mm-hmm. it. Do that. And so he started, uh, smoking marijuana because he believed that it wasn't addictive and, um, you know, nobody dies from marijuana, mom, you know, that type of thing. All that marijuana did was make him lazier and um, not care about things as much. And I think it probably loosened his inhibitions to try other things because if that made him feel good, well, what's this pill going to do? It might even make me feel better. When, when you started to find out about, um, well, I guess, um, how did it start for him? Was he a particular crowd that he was running with or is it just kind of like, how, how did it start for him or do you? Yeah, I think, um, the group that he was with, uh, you know, they enjoyed the pot. Um, and 
you know, I did not know until after the fact that he had um, started uh, taking pills or anything like that until Nick came to us and told us he was addicted to heroin. Like it went from, I think I have a kid who smokes pot to mom, I have to tell you something, I'm addicted to heroin. So, you know, his, I don't know that, his friends that he had here were involved with, with some pills and things like that, but I don't think that they were heavy, heavy users. Like all those kids were very high functioning people. Like no one was missing work or school or anything like that. I think Dick just had more of an addictive personality. Once he found it, like he ran with it. And um, yeah, I think it was, very, it was an isolating thing too. I don't think he was really like a party kind of kid. How did, how did you address it with him when, when he, when he told you, like, what were the, you know, from a parent's perspective and I'll let you chime in on this, Chris. And uh, well, gee, thanks Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my heart I'm bossy was... today. I'm bossy today. You are. <laughs> <laughs> my heart broke when he said that, like, it was the last thing I expected. Um, you know, how do you go from pot to heroin? Like, what kind of mother am I that I had no idea that that happened? Like, I, like I said, we ate dinner every night. All I would do is yell at him, Nick, you know, stop smoking pot. You know, like you're, you're, you messed up today. Like blah, blah, blah. Like I didn't know that I was looking at a kid who some days was in withdrawals and some days was that, you know, like, I think, I think that goes to the old, you know, it's just pot. Mm -hmm. And that mentality, like, well, they're doing, they're just smoking pot. I mean, we hear it now, you know, people that are off the pills and off heroin and they just smoke pot. And, and it's like back in the back of my mind, it's like, you're going to do that full circle. I mean, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Um, In the beginning, you had said that, you know, you were very um, private family. Do you feel like, you know, you couldn't share with anybody because of the stigma or was it for fear of, uh, you know, being that parent that nobody would ever talk to again? I mean, it's part of the stigma too, but why, why did you not share with anybody? Were you alone in this at the time? I mean, five years ago is kind of when we were just kind of getting into and more and more uh, normal families, quote unquote, uh, we're starting to, you know, we were starting to see the losses of, of all American families, as opposed to homeless, um, you know, the, the, how addiction is labeled, you know, it's the homeless, poor, whatever, dirty people that live on the streets. Um, is that why you didn't share or did you just not have anybody to share? Um, it was because of Nick that I didn't share, um, probably him because of my husband, um, Nick told us, he said, please don't tell anyone. I don't want anyone to know. And I, I respected him with that, but it was very nicely. I told, you know, my sister and my family that I felt like they had to know. Cause I mean, we call, we tell each other, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so's at the doctors cause they've got a cold, you know? So we're very close family. Like, so I had to tell them that Nick had um, come to us with that, but he didn't want anyone else to know. And I think that probably, it might've been a relief for me too, to be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. Cause yes, what kind of mom am I that I've raised a kid who's now addicted to heroin? That might've been in the back of my mind. I know my husband didn't want anyone to know. My husband still doesn't really like that. Everybody knows our business, you know? Um, and I, I think it goes to not wanting to be judged for him mm. for sure. I work with a couple of different families in Braintree and I feel like some towns are more closed about it than other towns, you know, and it's, it kind of blows my mind. It's like, you're not alone, you know, mm. but I mean, five years ago, um, we were very alone. Uh, yeah. Seven years ago, we were very alone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so tell us about uh, the sun will rise. Tell us about the beanstalk and how beanstalk came um, came about. Share sure. a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, 
Shortly, a, a couple of days after Nick died, I found his, I, think I call it his recovery notebook because it was like a little book that he was supposed to do all his little lessons in when he went to IOP. And um, in the front cover, it said, please be happy. The sun will rise. Ooh. Yeah. So I took that. That was his message, right? To himself. I can do better. I can do this, right? I then took it as the message that was left for us. Like, mom, you can do this. You're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. And I don't want you to cry for me the rest of my life or rest of my life, I should say. So, um, so we started after a while, I started that grief support group in Braintree and um, it took off the first day, just from word of mouth, there were eight families that were there shortly after that. I'd say three meetings later, we had 28 people in that group. And I was like, wow, this is uh, something that is so needed in our area. So we had to expand to a second group. So Braintree, and then we went to Quincy. So we could kind of divide the group in half and have give people enough chance to talk, which is what you need at a grief support group because uh, the death from an overdose is so, it's traumatic. It's, there's so many things that go with it that, just you need to talk about, you know, there's the shame, blame, guilt, fear. There's all this type of stuff. So we expanded. We expanded again to Weymouth. And um, and now this year, we have a total of nine groups. Of course, then COVID hit, boom, ruined that. And now we have to go to a Zoom format. So we've got six Zoom groups for grief support, which is amazing to me. And I have a bunch of wonderful facilitators. But along with um, the grief support, we also decided to do things to help with prevention. And um, so I've gone and I've talked to a bunch of different places. We've done, you know, talks at schools and I've talked to like the gymnastic association and the, um, the um, district attorneys for um, uh, Norfolk County has done some great programming uh, for pediatricians. So we talked in front of them um, to talk about the risk factors that I think I missed and what I think is needed as a, a pediatrician office. Cause I took Nick, I'm sorry, I'm backtracking a little. No, bit. no, no, this is great. I took Nick to the doctors when I thought something was wrong with him, when I found out he was smoking pot the first time and his message to him was don't smoke on the weeknights and keep your grades up. That was his message to my kid when I wanted help for that. Yeah, I was bullshit. And Nick walked out of that office like, well, see, mom, it's no big deal. See, so. Doctor co-signed on his behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so I was mad about that. But then I took him later on when Nick kept being sick. And I didn't realize that was, he was trying to on his own. And there was withdrawals. He was being sick. He wasn't obviously telling me. I took him to the doctor. The doctors didn't test him for drugs or anything like that. They told me, oh, it's allergies and bronchitis and this, but I didn't think to ask for a drug test and they didn't do one on their own. So I like really, my messages to pediatricians like be part of the solution, not part of the problem in these kids' lives. Like when they're 14, 15, 16, like do question behavior and don't assume like everybody's just not going to dabble in drugs. Like you've got to question these kids harder as a pediatrician. Do, do so, you th- so, go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was going to say, I think, um, I know a doctor who works for St. Saint, uh, E's in, in Boston and, or in, in Austin or Brighton, wherever. And he says that, um, you know, this isn't your father's marijuana these mm-hmm. days. And I wonder if a lot of doctors or pediatricians may not be up on the fact or people are not on the fact that this marijuana is not, you know, what we had when we were kids, you know, this is a, a, a different, uh, a different deal. And, um, you know, do you think that there needs to be more education on that? hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm, I'm thinking like, when I think of my doctor now, I'm like, oh yeah, he was probably like a hippie kind of guy back in the day. Right, right. <laughs> you know, probably smoked pot on his own. It was like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Like, what's this mom freaking out about? Um, I think, you know, so I know that pediatricians now do talk to children um, when they go in for their, their appointments after a certain age. Teddy Grams? Ask, Teddy Grams? Uh, okay. Yogurt All right. melts. All right. Um, <laughs> 
But I think what they do is they say, okay, mom, step out. We're going to talk to your child. And honestly, do you think, I mean, it's a, it's a, right there. It's a once every six months checkup. Do you really think that a kid's going to say, hey, yeah, doc, listen, I'm snorting heroin at 14 or 15 or 16. Do you really think like, I mean, personally, I think that, you know, if you go in and you take your kid in and they've dropped eight pounds, you need to have a blood test. What's going on? Like, that's, yep. you yep. know, um, are the grades dropping? What's the behavior? They need to pull the mom in the office and say, hey, what's the behaviors going on? Are they still doing A, B and C? Because when you were here six months, eight months ago, you know, they were captain of this team. They were doing this. Their grades were this. Now, all of a sudden, you see, I mean, those are telltale signs. Yeah, but you know what? There's a uh, there's a when you see this with, you know, regular uh, primary care, you know, the average PCP spends four minutes with their patients and that according to statistics, and they have about a caseload of about 2,300 patients on average a year, they see that many. So, you know, how do they, how are they able to see the patient load and be attuned to all this? I don't know if they, you know, which speaks to the healthcare problem because they have to do it in such, they have to see so many patients because the insurance pays less and less. So they have to do a volume business basically is my, my understanding. So they should be more attuned to it. Yeah. I feel really left, left, let down. I mean, I brought him in, my kid smokes pot. He's depressed. He's sick all the time. He's lost weight. Hello. Somebody help me here. Somebody help me understand what's going on. You know, they're the ones with the medical degrees. Like they need to be attuned. This is a disease just like any other disease. If they know everything about, you know, cystic fibrosis, they should know everything about addiction. And, and hopefully the kids that are coming out of medical schools now are getting that education that they need. Better education, but it's too late. I mean, what about the generation that, that's sick and suffering? What about the grandchildren that were born that, some of us are raising that were born addicted. What about them? What are we doing to them? I mean, I advocated for my granddaughter at, I think she was six when she had her tonsils taken out and they tried to give her a take home description, a prescription of Dilaudid. I'm Let's, like, no. Right. Let's hear from Kimberly. Cause she's been uh, a wallflower. Kimberly, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I just, I think that, um, that there's many good points being made. I think the doctors don't have any education um, on addiction when they in, in law in men's school, that's the first and foremost. I mean, it should start there. They should, they should be more aware and more educated about what's, ha what's happening and how to treat it and where to go. And if not, then they at least need to, you know, uh, refer them to a specialist, but yeah. This, and, and the fact of Nick not wanting to tell anybody speaks directly to the shame that's involved in this, in this disease. There should be sympathy, not, not stigma, you know? So, so as, as a, okay. So now you, um, you know, going back to the foundation kind of, you had said, you know, you were paralyzed or you were having trouble um, getting off the couch as what happened that kind of um, lifted you to start what you're doing. How did, how did that kind of materialize? What was the, you know, when did that happen? Um, so it was, a, it was a few months um, and my sister was a big help with that. I had actually been introduced finally to someone else who had lost um, a son um, to overdose. And that connection like was like a light bulb going off. Wow. She completely understands me. Um, I can say all these crazy things to her that I couldn't say to anyone else because they would think I'm insane. And um, that's when I understood the value of having someone out there and um, to know that I wasn't alone in my grief. And uh, so we started to, to do things. Actually, um, Chris, you know, um, Linnell with Hand Delivered Hope. Yeah. That was one of the first things I did, um, ended up doing because one of the moms who lost someone um, had been talking about her group about helping kids on the street living an act of addiction by delivering them, you know, the backpacks, the backpacks, food yep. supplies, 
um, resource information. And went on, went on a, I went on her first trip and went on yeah. many of those and it was very powerful. Yeah, very powerful. And you know what, Nick was never, Nick lived a charmed life and, and was never homeless. But for some reason to me, it was like, I can't take care of my kid, but I can take care of someone else's kid. Um, so we started doing that monthly and that really gave me that, um, I don't know, like that purpose maybe to, to go out and help others, helping others helped myself a lot. And then combining it with going to a grief group in Brighton. And that was Rhonda Lottie's group. Who was an amazing mom. She's amazing. She is like my hero, my mentor, my everything. I love her. And, um, she convinced me that, yeah, I could do this group on the South shore and not have to drive to Brighton to get grief support. So, so we did that. And, um, and then we figured out we needed some monetary help. If we were going to do this, we needed to fundraise. So Nick being very musical, he could pick up any instrument and just play it by ear, which I don't know where he got that, you know, sing a note in tune. And, um, they, his friend and his girlfriend said, well, instead of doing like a golf tournament or a road race, why don't we do a music festival? And I was like, well, I have no idea how to do that, but okay, let's try. <laughs> so, so we did it in the first year, you know, like it was really small. It was inside Braintree Town Hall. We had about 200 people, but in my head, I just didn't want it to be a fundraiser. Like I wanted it to help our community. So we had a bunch of resource tables there and you know we talked about addiction we talked about prevention and it gave the community like wow this is happening in our town like this let's talk about this got a lot of newspaper you know um time and airtime and that type of stuff so it was great and we made some money and then it kind of snowballed so the last uh, this would have been our fifth year doing it um it just got bigger and bigger. And we um, also added at the end of it um, a, a vigil because Braintree has never done an overdose vigil or anything like that. So we also added that into it. And, you know, so the day is a great day because we now have in between the musical acts, we have people in recovery speaking because, uh, you know, it's about showing the world that there are so many people living in recovery that we don't hear about. It's a quiet population so that people understand that even though if you do have substance use disorder, you can go on and live a great, healthy life. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a really fun day. So you get like, you get your message out, but people are still having fun, which is something I really like and think Nick would really, well, he would have killed me because everybody in the town would be there with his big face, a picture of his face. <laughs> <laughs> but um but I think he would really appreciate that. I, we know we've helped people directly from it. We've had um, people that have found help at Beanstalk and I've gotten phone calls the next day. Yep, we did an intake on them last night. Um, or we, and we also do scholarships to sober living. So like this person wanted help that night, we were able to scholarship them into a program because they didn't have any money. Um, it's, it's just an amazing time. And I, it's, it's one of those events where you go and it's, it's got such a variety that it's not your typical, you go and there's all these resources there. The resources are there, but within the resources, uh, she has these, um, this place where you can paint, uh, messages and, there are other paintings there that are by people that are in recovery. Um, there's a Frisbee toss, uh, you know, she's got the, the raffles, but they're not like raffles. They're like raffles, like they're amazing <laughs> raffles. Like the donations and support that she gets for this are, is insane. She has food trucks, you know, so you can get food. Um, it's, an, it's an all day thing with great music. Well, some great music. <laughs> she, she allows bands that are i got a good band for you too yeah she's she's got bands that good are sober like, band uh, she's got bands that are like just starting but you know what it's it's okay that they're not that great it's a 
It's about what they're about. They're in recovery and they're playing music and they've got together and this is a new passion for them. And it's a way for them to express themselves. So at the end of the day, it's, it's just one of those things that you walk away from and, and you're like, wow, that was great. And you see so many people. Um, so I, yeah. I, I want to back up for a second. Um, first of all, Kimberly, uh, do you have any thoughts about Robin mentioning about sober living and scholarships? Do you have any thoughts on that being in um, having a sober living home? Kimberly? Did we lose her? Okay. Sorry, sorry, I'm here. I'm sorry. My question is, is Robin mentioned that sober living was one of the things that she um, does with scholarships. Can you tell me about, um, you know, from your perspective, um, you know, about scholarships, et cetera, you know, from your perspective, yeah. from what, are, what are some of it, your it thoughts? Helps. Yeah, it helps tremendously, Andy. It's, and that, you know, people being able to provide scholarships uh, or entities, I should say, so helps the people in need. And when they really want it, you can tell they really want it. And they come in and they do everything you ask and they're absolutely you know, they're so grateful to be there. I think scholarshiping from, you know, fundraising, whatever um, means possible is so beneficial. And they feel, you know, they feel grateful. They feel like somebody cares. It's a win-win across the board. So yeah, we've been very successful with, with scholarships for the, um, for the girls. So Robin, so, you know, to back up for a second, we talked about depression, right? And that Nick had depression. Did in hindsight, I mean, did, did, was that something you tried to address? We, yeah, I did try to address it with him. Um, and we got the name of a therapist, but he wouldn't go. He would That's keep, right. You said that, right. Yeah, I'm not going to get out of the car. So, you know, how do you force a 16 year old to deal with his depression if he won't deal with it on his own? Like if I'm giving you the tools, but he won't take them. Frustrating. Very right frustrating so as moms right as chris and i know we're jumping all over but that's me um but as moms so i've done this will be my 128th show between my radio show and this show and i've talked to so many different moms over the course of the of the past three years and i hear you guys you ladies and I'm I'm like ready to start this you know go not off the wall because there's so many stories out there of moms and families that have lost children and yet how do we get people to understand that this can happen to anyone and that if you're, you know, we're so, um, you know, today there's so many helicopter parents or we want our kids to do this and that, and we're so, um, attached to them, but yet this is something that is affecting everybody. And I still feel like, why can't we get the support needed to help? And that it's just like, I, I feel so frustrated. There's so many moms out there that are trying to do really good work and share their experiences and do you ever get frustrated or feel like it falls on deaf ears sometimes? <laughs> really? Really, Andy? I'm just asking. I'm throwing out the yeah. question. Of course we do. I mean, I haven't lost a kid, uh, gratefully, yet. That's, that's how I live. Gratefully, yet. Because that's how this disease works. They can be in recovery, and in a millisecond, it's over. And... You know, my message and Robin mes Robin's message are parallel, but Robin's lost a child. She doesn't have to do this. And there are so many moms, like you said, that have lost children because it's not just a child anymore. It's children. And yet you get up every day. You're there for so many. That's where I draw my energy. I draw my energy from all, if these guys can get up every day after losing a child, then I have no business laying down and saying, you know, we have to. And yes, it does fall on deaf ears because, because we were just gaining momentum when COVID hit. We were after years 
of banging on the walls, we were just gaining momentum. And now it's, it's drug, drug addiction. What's that? We're on the back burner in the cottage that's a million miles away in a different country. So it, it, what would it look like if you could get the support? See, now to me, right, doing this, um, you know, I, it was funny. I had a conversation with my nephew who's a, a social worker. And he wants to move to New York. He's a future social worker. And he wants to move to New York. And he's got to take $100,000 in loans out to go to social work school. I'm like, you get right. paid nickels. That's what I said to him. I said, so you're going to take $100,000 out. I said, there's a real need in treating substance use disorders, right? And being there for people. I said, there's a real need. But it's like, it doesn't people are hiding from it. So they're hiding from it. So how do you get corporate America behind it? That's how I'm looking at it. How do we get corporate America behind it? How do we get, you know, there's some very influential people out there. Not that you're not influential, Robin, but I mean, there's some like notable celebrities and people who have lost children and don't talk about it. Right. And they have a platform and they're not talking about it. So, and they're, so is it, you know, don't we need those people to build a share of voice like cancer people are they rally behind cancer, but yet we don't get yeah. that from addiction. We, so sometimes when I see like, Oh, they do the, um, they put it on every single channel, like comedy for cancer or, you know, um, when there's a hurricane or whatever, there's this big devastating thing that happens it goes on all the channels and all these celebrities are out there with their voices. They've never done that for a substance use disorder. Nope. Now, they did. And, and so many of them have been affected by it. Mac, Mac Miller who died, you know, Mac Miller's um, I got connected to Mac Miller's mom. You know, Mac Miller is a, you know, he was the rapper. Kids love yeah. him. There's so much yeah. she could do with that, but it's so painful for her. Hopefully she'll get ready. But, you know, if you listen to, you know, his music, I'm, you know, when I was telling her, I'm like, there's things you can do without being, you know, let Mac share his stories, you know, through his music, through his, you know, through quotes, through things like that, where you may not have to be out front, uh, front and center, but still do stuff. And it's easy for me to say because I'm not a parent and I don't have a child in that. But I just I'm so frustrated I, I really am. I'm very frustrated because I've probably interviewed or had conversations with maybe 30 moms, 35 moms, honest to God. I mean, we've had several on our show right now, uh, you know, since we've been doing the map and it's like, it's the same. I, I'm not being disrespectful, you know, minimizing you, but so many moms have the same story yet. How do we build that traction to, to make to move, you know, to make a difference. So, um, you know, you know uh, Melissa Etheridge just lost her son and um, she was finally talking about it the other day. She was on Good Morning America. And I was like, wow, here's a celebrity that's willing to put themselves out there and um, talk about this issue. They ended up, you can watch it online. Like they, they only had a short part of it but you can watch the rest of it, you know, online. And I was like, so glad, like, Hey, hello. There's so many more of you out there that have lost children, but. Um, it's painful though. That's the, that's the, you know. But I think if you're in a public position, you've got a lot of power to help make change and make people understand what the real situation is out. You know, how many people are not just that we're losing, how many of our kids are addicted, right? Chris, like that number is unbelievable. It's unmeasurable. It's absolutely unmeasurable. And and like not to keep coming back to like the whole COVID thing, but when we get out of COVID, we're going to have, and they're predicting like COVID, we're not going to be fully free of this whole COVID on whatever for at least two years. So Imagine it may, never be, it may never go back. Right. I mean, like, yeah, we, this is going to be our new normal. Isn't going to, I guess, really show itself for about two years is what they're basically saying between the masks and the social distancing and everything else. 
Um, we've got a, we've got two years ahead of us. Think about the people. I mean, Robin, you know as well as I know. We've been talking about it. The detoxes are full. The CSSs are full. Nobody's talking about the overdoses. But go ahead and look on Facebook every day. Two, three, four RIPs. Back in 2015, when this whole disease started, the RIPs were overwhelming. They weren't as public. 2016, they became a little bit more public. And by 2017, it was everybody was RIP. Kids knew before parents knew that they had lost kids. There were RIPs on their Facebook pages before parents were even notified that they had lost their children. Like that's, that's what's going to happen. We're going to have a repeat of 2016, 2017. It, it's coming. It's coming. I can already feel it because the number of new parents that I have that have joined my group yep. is overwhelming, especially during COVID. Um, and these parents haven't been able to grieve the correct way, you know, with a proper funeral and a proper wake, isolated. Um, it's, 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 it's so painful. It's got to be, I'm sorry to cut you. It's got to be so incredibly painful to, as parents to, to go through this. I can't imagine. I can't, I don't know, but, um, I know these moms, you included and, um, Chris and, um, are so courageous for being on the front lines of this. And it would just be so nice to have some more support for you guys. Right. And that's why we do this show. Um, you know, we, uh, we're all passionate about it. Like Kimberly said, um, if people want to help you or I, I, we all want help, but if somebody wants to support your organization, I know that you have the, the beanstalk, um, is on hold for this year, but you're looking at doing some other things. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, how they can help you, um, how would they go about doing such? They can go to the sunwillrise.org. We have a give page there. You can pay by PayPal or Venmo. You can send a check. Um, we're also going to be doing our, even though we can't have an in-person vigil this year, we're still going to have a vigil for, for our community. It's going to be combined with Braintree and Quincy and uh, Weymouth, sorry, Crytown, um, that we're going to have people able to go on to Zoom and we're going to do a little thing and in the morning, we're going to have a butterfly candle pickup so people can release a butterfly and pick up their candle for the evening. Um, but um, support for us in includes, you know, monetary support, but it also includes being vocal. Like you support us every time you support someone that's in active addiction, using proper language, um, you know, asking what you can do to help the community, not putting your head in the sand, um, promoting, you know, until kids are 21 to use instead of allowing them to use in your basement, you know, drinking and thinking it's, you know, the cool mom or dad, you know, like support. Our mm. It's not just about money to us. It's about supporting our message. Building the, your community. Now, um, when you, you know, and this is probably, I don't usually ask this question, but I'm going to ask the question. Um, no, it's okay. No. Um, <laughs> when you raise funds, where does the funding go to? Like, what are you funding with? Yeah. So only a small part needs to go to the actual grief support um, because we have mostly facilitators that do that. Doesn't cost a lot of money. We just need materials. Um, so like, our, if you're in person and you get surviving the grief of an overdose loss, um, navigating grief and surviving the grief of traumatic loss. Like we have some materials that we give to people to help them, but the majority of our money goes to sober living scholarships, which we put on hold for a little bit right now until we know what money we'll have for this year um, because we weren't having mean stock. So last year we did $46,000 worth of sober living scholarships. That's tremendous. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So we were really happy about that. We've also helped, um, we help the community in different ways. Um, so if a family is really struggling, they have someone in active addiction or something like that, and they need some monetary help for something you know, odd that comes up, we can help them as well with that. So 
it's really going to the community that directly needs it. Um, we don't, it's, it's for Massachusetts. So we don't say, you know, just the Braintree area because it's where I'm based out of. But there is usually, the tab is off right now, a sober living scholarship application that they have to um, go through. And you have to be coming from treatment into sober living. And it needs to be a sober living place that, um, that I know and you know, kind of approve of because some of this money I just don't want to throw away on some of these houses. That do, the houses do the houses have to necessarily be MASH certified or if you know the house and it's a good house? Yeah, you know, I like them to be MASH certified, but if I know the house and they haven't gone through that exact process, um, you know, I, I have done that. <laughs> requirements, but um, it is a number of houses that we work with on a, on a routine basis. Um, so that, you know, that's where the money, the money goes. And, you know, I, a quick story about the Frisbee toss at Beanstalk, because it's like a 50-50 type of thing, right? Um, so if you throw the Frisbee and land on the spot, you get the $1,000. If you get right beside it, nobody lands exactly, you get 500, the, the closest person. So the person two years ago, she was jumping up and down and she said, um, oh, I'm so glad, I'm so glad I won this, whatever. And I'm, yep, here's her $500 off she went. I saw her the next summer when I was doing a table at another event and she had her son with her and I said, I wanna introduce you to my son. And he came up, he goes, you saved my life. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she he said, my mom didn't have a dime to her name. She won the $500 at Beanstalk and put me in a program that next morning. And I've been sober ever since. And that, that's what you Isn't do. That, yeah. So I love those stories. I hear from the kids that we've scholarshiped. Um, you know, not all of them have stayed on the path. Most of them have. So my fingers are crossed. But I love to hear how well they're doing. And what they also do is once they realize that people are out there that love them and support them no matter what, they're able to give back to want to pay it forward so that's a really nice thing thank you that that's awesome and um you really are doing great work and we really appreciate you coming on today because um you know we always want to hear from um people like you who are making a difference and really trying to um you know be out there sharing your story it's very courageous so um can you give can you give your website again yep the sun will rise.org Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's our show for the week. And uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, Kimberly, any closing thoughts? Um, just want to remind people we do the podcast to help reduce the stigma and uh, be of service to anyone struggling. We've got an entire network of professionals and we can help you find the right fit. Um, so reach out to us on our Facebook page or at the numbers that you see during the podcast. Um, and that's it. You've been listening to the map. Thank you so much, Robin. And um, we'll see you all on Wednesday at 11. Take care, everybody. Have a great Thank weekend. Thank you, everybody. Thank Bye-bye you, Robin. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.